0: Welcome to Masters of Business, a show that gives you real-world techniques, cutting-edge strategies, and extraordinary insights for managers and leaders who want to develop the business acumen needed to go faster and farther in their business careers. Now, here's the master himself, Stephen Haynes.
1: Welcome back, everyone. As many of you know, I've created this show, Masters of Business, to guide business people on their journey to leadership success by leveraging the core constructs of business acumen. These constructs are laid down in something I call a business acumen canvas that are available to you on the business acumen website, business-acumen.com. Remember, this show is available on your standard podcast platforms as a vidcast currently through YouTube and things like that. Anyway, so today I am extraordinarily grateful to have as my guest David Siegel, who is, as you can see on his t-shirt, or some of you can't, he is the CEO of Meetup and has been in that row about a year. If you don't know what Meetup is, I don't understand what to say but it is one of the most profound platforms that have has evolved over the last couple of decades he's also been the ceo of investopedia another one of because i'm a finance geek um one of my other favorite sites and platforms in the world and he's been president of seeking alpha and a number of leadership roles but what what's even more important is he just released a groundbreaking book called decide and conquer 44 decisions that will make or break all leaders i i I can't even wait to start. So, David, thank you so much for coming to the show.
0: Ah, Super excited to be here. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to spend time with you and your audience. So oh, thank you a, for the opportunity.
1: Amazing. Absolutely amazing. I think it's going to be great. Anyway, so I can safely say that you have been around the block. And before <laughs> that we- means I'm <laughs> old, right? Is that how it works? I'm going to need my walker soon. But... Um, That said, um, and I do want to talk a little bit about the guts of the book, um, but I would love you to share some of your background and experience and how you got to where you are, and even highlight some of those dimensions with respect to business acumen. So let's see what you got.
0: Okay, here we go. So I would say probably the most atypical aspect of my background, Stephen, is that I started off in human resources, which is not so common for someone to go from human resources to CEO, but it should be actually more common because what do human resources people focus on? They focus on hiring top talent, pretty important for business acumen and and masters of business success. They focus on managing people. They focus on um, retaining great people. They focus on motivating people. So I had worked at DoubleClick, which in the late nineties was the internet company Um, to work at. In fact, over a hundred CEOs have come from the early double click days. I kid you not. Yes. And uh, I was an HR partner to uh, a group, the technology group. And I kept giving advice to different managers to do certain things, not do other things. And at a certain point, I'm like, man, these managers don't know what they're doing. I could be much better at it than what they're doing. So then I decided to go to a business school. I went to Wharton for business school because I had to learn some like hard skills. And whenever everyone else at business school was like partying and networking, I was like, I got to learn business because I don't know anything. I, I'm not saying HR people don't, but I didn't have enough of a deep business background. Yeah. And then I went through a series of different, you know, director. I went to uh, a pharmacy chain called Dwayne Reed, where I, I built a business from the ground up that did about $30 million in revenue. Oh. Uh, then I worked at 100 Flowers for about five years and I ended up running mergers and acquisitions for the company and marketing across their 10, 15 different product lines popcorn, cookies, chocolate, et cetera, flowers. I became general manager of a business at Everyday Health, which is the second largest um, web publisher focused on subscriptions and ad revenue. Then, president of Seeking Alpha. CEO of Investopedia, like you said. And then the latest and greatest, um, Meetup, which is really um, you know, the, the most important job for me because of the fact that Meetup is all about curing the loneliness epidemic. And the loneliness epidemic is real. forty six percent of people regularly feel lonely, and our our mission is a noble mission, and it's deeply meaningful to me personally. You know this,
1: first of all, it is an astounding career journey. And it it sounds sort of similar to mine, you know, because I started out as a finance guy, but I had all these other things ended up through product and stuff like that. But um, one of the things that I have learned is how you learn how a person um, assimilates and You know, it's almost like we're we're practitioners. The way maybe a surgeon or a lawyer would be a practitioner, we sort of have these bodies of knowledge, but we learn through these experiences. What are some of the most profound experiences that you've been able to learn from?
0: Okay. So I didn't bring that one. I have to tell you. Yeah. See, no, it's great. So I find that the greatest learning for me in my career has always happened through crises. Because when your back is against a wall and you need to really deal with a difficult situation. And, and fortunately, unfortunately I've had many crises in my career, dating all the way back to taking it even to the DoubleClick days. So when I was at DoubleClick in the late 90s, the company went from you know about a few hundred employees, went up to a thousand employees within a year, over tripled the number of employees in, in you know, the internet bubble. And then it was also there when we had to go from thousand employees back down to about 300. The stock went from 15 up to 300 down to 10, in 12 months. So in that type of an environment, you're, 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 you're in massive change management scale. You're, you're going from acquiring. So one of the things I focused on was when you acquire a company, how do you decide how to structure that organization? How do you decide what products people keep, what products to go? You're dealing with people in a very sensitive time period. And how do you handle change management processes? And throughout my career, I've had different. So that that's one example of something that really shaped me when I was 24 years old, I had to fire 30 people in one day, for example, as a 24 year old. And you learn a lot from how to deal with people and how to handle the survivors, quote unquote, you know, in those types of situations. And I think that, that really helped to shape me. The other thing, the, the other area that I personally have learned the most from in life is just mentors. Um, in every job that I have had, I've had one or two people that took me under their wing, and I was very intentional about finding people that I respected a lot. That I would ask to build relationships with. I built relationships to take me under their wing to such an extent that I built such a close relationship. I was consulting to DoubleClick actually. First, I worked in consulting, HR consulting, and the CEO of DoubleClick, a person named Kevin Ryan, at one point came to me and he said, "David, we pay your consulting from two hundred dollars an hour. You probably make." a year, because you're only a couple years out of school. How about we double your salary, and then we could pay half the amount to what we're paying consulting for. You just do what you do consulting here. Kevin Ryan is the same person that 20 years later, I stayed in touch with him. He, as we're talking about mentorship, he is the person that acquired Meetup out of WeWork when we were owned by WeWork just about two years ago. So those mentors have been people that have helped and advised me for really 20 plus years and who I call up and get feedback from all throughout you know the time. And I could go through other examples of different you know ways in which I've learned, but I would say crises and mentorship have been my top two. You know, it's all it's all about the people when when yes. it really comes down to it. And I
1: I share some of that experience. Um I I sort of stumbled through the early parts of my career and I didn't fully get the idea that there are people who certainly know more because I don't know a lot. And if I keep on falling down and skinning my knees, I better go find somebody to help me. And And I recall finding those sort of knowledge people who, you know, first of all, I learned humility. <laughs> Um, at, you know, you're a young whippersnapper, and you think you know more than you think you should know. Whatever, but um, I think that's amazing. Um, do you ever find that that sort of
0: that humility is an important part of leadership development? It's, it's critical. I would say that I teach at Columbia. I was actually saying to my students last night because um, we had a class last night. Um, I said to them, oftentimes the strongest people who have the greatest potential are the ones that admit the most mistakes. Mm -hmm. and ask for the most help Mm -hmm. and the people, the ability to admit mistakes demonstrates humility. The ability to ask for help to say, I don't know how to do something demonstrates humility. If you have, if your ego and your pure ego and all of your decisions are about yourself, it's a great way to fail as a leader. The key is to be able to know that most people know a lot more about things, especially early in your career than 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 you do, and your greatest skill set is going to be asking questions of people who actually have lots of more experience than you do, in order to figure out what you actually should do. And that's a very important skill set to have, early, medium, and also senior levels of career. Like I don't know as much as about anything about but every air person who works for me. I had a marketing it was more about marketing than I do. I head of sales it was more about sales than I do. I head of Engineering is more about engineering than I do, and as a senior person or a junior person, it's about helping to ask the right questions, not about you know being didactic and asking questions. Is about learning and listening, and and humility is is critical to that. You know,
1: when you know, I, I in one of my business hackman workshops, I talk about communication and collaboration, and I'm and I say the words, and I say, you know, those are so overused, right? and they lose their meaning until you bring them into action right when when and i agree with you this idea behind when you have a problem you're in a crisis mode um not to say here's what we're going to do i'm going to go lead an army it's how do you draw from other people's expertise and figure out what a better path is to go i mean you can have some rights of last refusal if
0: you want you know if you get to be in charge Right. Always, you know, I was just telling someone, they said, when you when you became a, a, a professor at, at Columbia about seven years ago, um, how'd you figure out to write your curriculum? What'd you figure out to do? So I said, it was very easy. I just asked Columbia for the ten, for the, like the seven to 10 best professors that they have, you know, in this particular school that I teach in. And I asked for their email addresses. I emailed all seven to 10 of them. had a conversation with five of them. And I learned about what works and what doesn't work in each of their classes and ask for the copies of their syllabus, and then incorporated different learnings from each of them. And that's how I build the syllabus. And it's just about like asking questions and then integrating information in order and having an opinion yourself. Always you have to have an opinion yourself, but your opinion should be based on best practices and learnings that you get from other people. And maybe because prior to HR or in HR, I started off at HR consulting. That's really what a lot of consultants do. They're, they're able to kind of ask the right questions to people that know more than they do and then kind of integrate that information back to, to put together what, what makes sense. You know I, we, I, I, you know, I never talked about this with you. I, I was a part-time
1: instructor at Rutgers for like 15 years and I did almost the same thing. I had sort of these whippersnappery ideas because uh, I thought that some of the teachers I had, both as undergraduate and a graduate, were sucky. And I said, I, I know I can do better. Um, but how do you know what to do better on? And you have to ask. And that is something that I think is amazing. I think that some people don't. I think that when people feel I have to be able to solve the problem, my boss delegated this to me, I've got to go out and do, the, do this. And sometimes I have found, even in my own um, experience as a leader, that even in delegating, sometimes people would say, yes, boss, But I wasn't convinced that they knew exactly what they wanted to do. And they wouldn't even admit that they didn't either have the experience or know how. Have you ever encountered that?
0: All all the time. And I I would say that it's a combination of humility that you said up front, but there's also confidence that you need to have at the same time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the people who lack self-esteem the most and are the least confident are the Mm -hmm. ones that are least comfortable asking for help and asking questions. So it takes a certain confidence level actually in yourself to be comfortable saying, I don't know how to do something. Because normally if someone lacks confidence, they say, I don't know how to do something, they feel bad. But if you if you acknowledge the fact that you don't and it doesn't necessarily reflect negatively on you, it becomes a much easier thing to do. So it's actually that interesting duality of like, be confident, but be humble in how you actually decide to approach things. Sometimes
1: I talk or I teach about um, like informal networks inside of organizations. Mm. You know, you sort of have knowledge hubs, like who knows who knows who knows who. And I talk and I write about this idea behind you, you need to know how to navigate in an organization in order to build, whether it's your business acumen, your leadership capability, your your credibility so that you can influence. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah,
0: sure. So I kept it really simple. I looked at who was the most senior people in a company, straight up, who are all the executives in a company. And I tried to find ways in which I could add value and help them in some way, shape or form, not starting off with how they could help me, but what could I do to help them? And I would um, you know, come up with different ideas or suggestions or whatever it is that they were doing. I would ask them if I could go to lunch with them. And and it was just amazing. I had I had built a relationship again at 24 years old, younger in my career, with the top 10, 15 people who were you know 10, 15 years of experience, um, you know, at this particular company. And I kind of just did that over and over again in other companies. And it wasn't like to kiss up to them; it was because I genuinely wanted to like learn as much as possible. To such an extent that when I graduated from business school, my dream job. Was to become an assistant to the CEO. And at Warden, everyone was want to be a consultant, I never wanted to be an investment banker, da, da, da. I purposely then reached out to 50 different CEOs of companies, Ken Chennault from American Express, David Stern, who recently passed away, the commissioner of the National Basketball Association, the head of Dwayne Reed, a whole bunch of different companies. And I ended up having 10 different conversations with. CEOs to try to convince them that I should be their assistant CEO, work on their board decks. Because again, I wanted that mentoring. I wanted that learning. I felt like if I don't want to be a CEO, the best way to do it is to be under the tutelage of a great CEO.
1: Yep. You know, I, I interviewed this guy named George Oliver, who was the CEO of Tyco at the time. This was probably like 10, 12 years ago. And I think he I think he, might even be at JCI now, but he he talked about his first CEO job. He said he interviewed 100 different CEOs from various companies. He says, I don't know how to be a CEO. <laughs> like, holy smokes. And you wow. Hate. And then he spent a bunch of years in GE and stuff like that. But Wow. Oh, that's <laughs>
0: the real dude. That's the real thing. A, well, a, yeah. a, I have to tell you this story because you're going to appreciate it. So um, one of the CEOs that I met in the process of graduating from business school was the founder and CEO of, of 1-800-Flowers, Jim McCann. Mm-hmm. Three years later, a friend of mine calls me up and says, David, did you see Warden just did a job posting? I'm like, oh, what is it? They said, Warden, the job posting, no, excuse me, one flowers did a job posting on Warden's alumni database saying, one flowers looking for an assistant to the CEO. So I'm like, wait, I had talked to him three years about that ago about that. I sent him an email saying, I don't know if you remember me, but I was, you know, reaching out to become the assistant the CEO. We had like a half an hour conversation. He told me you weren't interested. He sends me an email back and it says five words. I was looking for you. God. And then I spent five years working at One Hundred flowers after that. So you just don't know what's that going is, to happen from these kind of connections and relationships.
1: That is sweet. And now
0: we just spoke last week, and I'm going to be on Jim McCann's podcast. So are you really ready? excited?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that, first of all, you're like one of my new idols because number one, I want—I would love to teach Columbia. Number one, number two is I want to know all these CEOs too. Like, and that's really one of my one of my goals here with this podcast is to to really get as many in the room as possible. You know, Wharton has that show on Sirius, right? They have the um, business show, which I saw. I, I was before. actually
0: on that show. Yeah. We really. Yeah. That's I was great. on that show. It was, it, was they, do, they do
1: a great job. They do a yeah, great job. Absolutely. Absolutely. Love that stuff. Anyway. Um, now so, I have to tell
0: you my Jack Welch story because he's oh, an amazing CEO. I'll oh. tell you that one. And then, and then I'll let you. That's so, okay. So I was, when I was the CEO of Investopedia, Investopedia was owned by IAC. IAC is a really interesting company. Um, Barry Diller is the chairman of IAC, mm-hmm. and they own HomeAdvisor and Angie List and Mash.com and oh, um, Vimeo and all these amazing properties. So um, Jack Welch was on the board of of IAC, and we went for for some boondoggle offsite with you know the CEOs of all the different companies, and I got an opportunity to spend half an hour talking to Jack Welch, the Jack Welch. Wow, Jack Welch was listed, by the way, for those who don't know, is the former CEO of General Electric. When he left the company, it was the highest market cap company in the world. In the world, and it was listed by Time Magazine as the as the manager of the century, of the entire 20th century list of Jackwell. So I said, okay, you're the manager of the century. I know nothing. He's like, yes, you're right. You know nothing. Okay. We're in agreement. Um, what is your number one piece of advice that you would give me to become an, to be an effective CEO? He said, okay, just got one word for you. I'm like, great. What is it? He said, the one word I have is trust. If you build employee trust, you will have everything and if you lose your employees' trust, you have nothing. And the best way to build trust is with transparency. If you have transparent about everything, you're honest about the good, the bad, and the ugly, that's the best advice I could give you. So I'm like, right. okay. So interesting. I, you know, that whole Patrick Lancioni model, you know,
1: and trust is at the bottom of the triangle, I always say it's really easy to say the word it's really hard to know how to earn it mm-hmm. um, so that you can sort of gain access to, to other people, which is which is really good. But let me, let, me, let me finish my agenda. So otherwise we'll be here till Thanksgiving and that will be too long. Um, but you talked a little bit about um, the build, some of these building blocks of business acumen um, is having these interdisciplinary perspectives without having to do anybody else's job. And you alluded to a little bit about this before, but you have all these functional specialists. Um, how how do you capitalize on that and and keep it integrated in your mind so that you can move the ship forward?
0: Yeah, so I've always had this, when I go to a wedding, I don't eat the main course. I always eat the smorgasbord. What I mean by that is that I've always been a generalist by nature and believed that the, Interdisciplinary approach to solving a problem is always more interesting. So in college, I majored in philosophy, political science, and economics. And the reason for that was not just because I didn't want to take a lot of courses in any one discipline, but it's because I really believe like you look at any problem. Civil War. Civil War wasn't just because of economics. It wasn't just because of politics. It wasn't just because of philosophy. If you look, it was because of the, the intersection intersection between each of those different areas. And that's a sound problem. And I find in business the same thing: that if you have someone that grew up in sales their entire life, let's say, and they see a problem, they're like, "This is a sales problem. We just have to follow, you know hire more salespeople." See, you know, someone the with a product their entire life. This is a product problem. We don't have the right user experiences. So my job is to Look at a challenge that we have and say, "Okay, this is actually a problem between product, marketing, and content. All three of us are contributing to that. Not you, but us. How can we get in a room together and understand how each of us are playing a role to try to address this problem? Or this solution is will only succeed if if we're taking both an engineering and product and whatever marketing, you know, perspective to get it to succeed." So, so I think. My habit, shall we say, is to never think that something can be solved by just looking at it through one lens, but to really always look at the multiple lenses that need to come together to actually address an issue. This business acumen canvas I
1: told you about or talked about earlier, it's sort of this multi-dimensional representation of sort of a, what what happens in business, both from outside perspectives, mindset, and core capabilities. And I think what the the essence of the model is almost like going seeing a painting, and that is you you can step back and see things from a specific vantage point, mm-hmm. and then zoom in to areas um, that you can study further, come back
0: and change your your perspectives. And sounds like a Sarah painting, right? Isn't he the pointillist impressionist painter? I think I he think is. Right. Anyway. I think you're right. You're yeah. right. Anyway,
1: um, but I all, you know, even you were in HR, right? And I remember teaching HR when I was at Rutgers. That was one of my things, right? Um, how you could become a specialist and a generalist. And I, I think today, the better leaders are these exceptional generalists or super generalists who have got zoomed in and zoomed out enough times to integrate and think literally, think their way forward um, with, with an army of people who they're able to bring along. And I think that yeah, that's I,
0: really critical. I, in, in my book, I referenced David Epstein's awesome, awesome book called Range which speaks specifically to the power of the generalist over the specialist. It's, it's quite right. excellent.
1: That's amazing. I'm going to look at that. So now I do want to talk a little bit about the book. What was your motivation for writing it? Um, tell us some of the key learnings and a little bit about how people can access
0: you. Okay. So I had always wanted to write a book around leadership and business and specifically, specifically around decision-making, because I had read a quote a decade ago, probably by Teddy Roosevelt. And the quote was the following. The best decisions are great decisions. The second best decisions are bad decisions. And the worst decision is no decision. And I had seen that so many people in business, but also in life are held back with inertia. They're held back and they don't realize that not making a decision is in fact a decision in itself. And I saw a lot of unhappiness in careers and unhappiness in people's personal lives. And people have always said to me, wow, like you're a pretty happy guy. You've been successful. And 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 there's just different principles, shall we say, that I've always had around decision making that I'll share with you now. Not all of them, don't worry, but like a few of them. And But my problem was I didn't want to write a standard, like boring textbooky business book. Here are the 10 principles. That's kind of boring. What I wanted to do is storytell and have this crazy, insane, you know, roller coaster of a story. And fortunately, being part of WeWork and Adam Newman created that absolute kind of crazy culture and crazy challenges that I've had to go through, you know, as part of that. And then trying to run Meetup when you couldn't meet up in person. And we had to upend our entire business model, created so many challenges and stories from that that the book, you know, didn't write itself, but in in a two-month time period, When the pandemic started, I just turned out 75,000 words because it was all kind of in my head very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how the book came up. Um, And in terms of, you know, some of the core principles around decision-making, I'll just share, you know, two or three with you. Please do. You know, the first I would like, I like to talk about is the criticality of disagreement when it comes to making smart decisions. And that You know, when you have someone like Abraham Lincoln, who was known for his team of rivals, who Mm. brought people around him who had very different perspectives, and even what we're talking about earlier, which is the importance of looking at things from from, from different functional perspectives, what the result of that is, is that people will disagree. And through that disagreement, better decisions end up getting made. If You hire someone who is just like you and has the same background as you, has the same experience as you, and there isn't going to be that disagreement. You're going to make worse decisions. And that tension that you have in talking about like a challenge, that's healthy. You want to encourage that healthy tension. You know, even in the
1: team of rivals construct, okay, there was a common goal all right, which was at the time the abolition of slavery. So regardless of the, you know, the four of them who who had issues and different principles, they still agreed on, on one and were motivated by one thing. So yes. I think, you know, in, in corporate speak, we talk about vision and goals and all, all that other stuff, which gets mushy as well, but this was concrete. Right. And I think you reach better, you can have better consensus and get better goal, better goal achievement if you can do that. Right.
0: Well said. It's about identifying a specific goal as part of like what decision you're trying to solve for and then coming at it with multiple different perspectives and then really figuring out what the right one is. So one is the importance of disagreement towards an aligned goal Mm -hmm. um, in terms of not disagree. Well, you can disagree towards the goal and then hopefully that will lead to alignment which is much better than passive-aggressive behavior, we all know. That's one. The second is when making a decision, I don't think people tend to prioritize enough the importance of what I call optionality in decision-making, meaning you can make a decision and it opens up myriad of different options, or you can make a decision and it's a trapdoor decision and it closes down a whole lot of those options. All too often, people don't think about the importance of creating options for yourself as part of, as part of a potential decision. And the reason why those options are so darn important is because people oftentimes will say to me or others, gosh, how'd you get so lucky? How'd you get so lucky? Well, lucky things happen to people when they create an environment that, um, that they create options. So for example, I got lucky in that Jim McCann from 100 flowers, like we were referencing earlier, happened to have decided to post something, but it was was it lucky or was it the fact that I spoke to 50 CEOs beforehand and I built 50 you know, pseudo relationships and that ended up turning into something because I thought about what option am I creating by being able to build these relationships and talk to people?
1: Can I, can I comment on that one too?
0: Yeah. because First of all, we, we didn't even rehearse this to
1: everybody. So just FYI, um, this idea of prioritizing Okay. Um, when I start a workshop and I'll talk about what are the things that bother you the most, and they, they say, well, I can't, I'm having trouble prioritizing, which means I don't understand what the problem is and I don't understand what the options are. And sometimes having some structure to optioning, like you can list all your ideas or options on the side of a page, but then what? How do you rate and rank them? How do you parameterize, for instance, a, a score against some criterion? Right. Those, I think that, see, there's,
0: mechanics I think as well as brain that goes behind this would you would you would you agree the process is really important when people think oh you know the way to be a successful entrepreneur is forget process forget bureaucracy let's just throw a lot of ideas against the wall and see what sticks you know no actually through process you actually have better idea generation through process you have better prioritization through process you have better execution those things are really important the key is for the process not to get in the way of success and to be able to move quickly and learn quickly and roll things out fast. But process is an enabler, not a disenabler. I I, I say that processes provide guard guardrails
1: <laughs> and that it allows you to be flexible and adapting in how you move forward. And I think you you can, you know, this my expression is dis- you have to decide your way forward. Nice. This is why I, I resonate with with what you wrote about. What's your third point?
0: Third one, sure. Uh I would just say that, you know, too oftentimes people look at the cult of the CEO and they see like the um, the Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, and they're like, "Oh, the way to become a successful CEO and leader is to be an asshole." Because look, at all these assholes—they do great. <laughs> what they don't realize is that there's also like thousands of assholes that have been fired from their jobs because no one wants to work with them, and they don't know how to interact with people, you know, who are you know humans. So my principle is around decisions: is when you make a decision, be kind. Figure not be nice, but be kind. There's a big difference between being nice and being kind. It's not nice to have to fire someone. But the kindest thing you might have to be able to do for someone is to fire them and say, "Hey, this isn't necessarily the right company for you. Maybe there's a different company you should work at." Is it nice to necessarily make someone feel uncomfortable by giving them constructive feedback? But it's the kindest thing you could do. So understand that your job is to enable them to succeed, and sometimes that that means that there's a tension, and sometimes that that that's healthy. and And be kind in your decision because you know your reputation matters. But don't necessarily go overboard and think that it's all about being nice all the time. I
1: think those are uh, really amazing points. I I could go on with you for like hours, but you probably have a job to do and and we all do, right? Um, But um, I think the things that we have talked about, um, even in sort of the serendipitous way, Um, Hopefully, people who are listening in or watching um, will pick up a a few key points about what it means to both establish relationships, that people are so incredibly important that collaboration is beyond the word, but it's actually in the doing and and what people see. People need evidence. Um, and and they see it in the behavior of of our leaders. And if we can model some of those things, I think that will offer tremendous value for anybody in in trying to grow their career.
0: Um, So that said, so uh, yeah, good, right? No, it's great. I mean, the reality is 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 it's about what you do, not what you say. And um, a leader is always under the microscope and it's important to be aware of that and acting appropriately um, and acting with conviction and acting ethically is uh, you know you know job number one in, mm-hmm. of, of a leader and then after that collaboration, prioritization, et cetera. There's this, this thing, you know, about children learn,
1: you know, all the things about children learn and if they see this, they, they're that way. And but children learn what they see. And mm-hmm. it's not that children are the people who staff com- are in staffed in companies, but people respond to what they see. It is our human programming. And sometimes we learn by exception. Sometimes we learn by example. It is better, I think, the example. But crisis is sometimes the exception that becomes the excellent teacher. And um, so with that, I am going to drive us to a conclusion. And thank you um, with the utmost of gratitude for your spending um, your time with us today um, and sharing things about you. Um, Again, um, the uh, David's the author of Decide and Conquer 44 Decisions That Will Make or Break All Leaders. Um, Pick up a copy, um, tune into this, tell your friends um, and please tune in next time for another edition of Masters of Business. I'm Stephen Haynes. We'll see you next time.
0: You've been listening to Masters of Business with Stephen Haynes, a podcast that captures the ideas and lessons learned from thinkers and leaders in business. If you'd like to take your company to the next level, consider the courses and books from the Business Acumen Institute. To learn more, go to business-acumen.com.